listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko's Wetsuit, and today it is the morning of Wednesday, the 22nd of September in Seoul, and the same time in Tejon, whence I am joined by today's guest, David Miller, to talk about a massacre that took place during the Korean War and about a British journalist who reported from within North Korea during the war. Before I introduce him properly, I need to ask all of you listeners to please rate, review, and reshare this podcast episode. I was looking at the viewership numbers for Joe Rogan's podcast, and you know, I have to say I'm quite jealous. He gets over a million and a half views, even for his least popular episodes, and I would love to have just 10%, a measly 10% of his audience. So you can help us achieve that goal by sharing the podcast and telling people about it. Also, if you haven't done so already, go to our website, nknews.org, and think about becoming a paid subscriber. Subscriptions help to keep NK News going to provide the best news in North Korea-focused journalism day after day. Finally, visit our online shop at nknews.org shop to see the very attractive art prints, posters, and books that we have on offer there. The recently released North Korea Leadership Organogram poster is really an excellent and attractive resource. Now, to introduce my guest today, David Miller is a writer and researcher who's doing research on an archaeological site in Daejeon. More about that later. Part of that involves scouring the Alan Winnington archive and other neglected sources from the Korean War. He's working for the Daejeon Metropolitan Government, but is originally from Great Britain. Welcome on the podcast today, David, and thanks for your time. Hi, thank you. Uh, so I first heard about you when I saw a, a documentary a couple of months ago. I guess it was for the anniversary of the start of the Korean War. So June 25th, there was a uh, documentary on KBS about something that happened in Daejeon. So briefly, can you walk us through what happened in Daejeon in late June, early July 1950? Well, uh, the, the events in Daejeon were actually from the 28th of June until the 17th of July. So about for about three weeks. Mm -hmm. So over the course of as soon as North Korea invaded, over the course of three weeks, people were taken to a, a single ma uh, valley in Daejeon and they were they were massacred, basically. And originally they came from Daejeon prison, but they also towards the end of the massacre came from other places, sometimes as far as Gyeonggi-do and things like that. Oh, and now, who was it that was killing whom and why? Uh, the people doing the killing at the time were the South Korean army and police. And the reason they were killing these people was because they thought they would join the North Korean uh, military and, you know, things would become difficult for the South Korean army. So it was a kind of a, a preemptive killing of people who they suspected would be North Korean soldiers if they were given a chance. Yeah, I think that's the most uh, horrible and controversial thing about it is that uh, they were, yeah, preemptively killing people. So not really a wise thing to do. When did uh, the city of Daejeon fall into North Korean army hands? Oh, that was on the 20th of July. So the last, the last massacre ended on dawn the 17th of July, yep. uh, that's because the North Koreans were approaching. So Daejeon actually fell properly into North Korean hands on the 20th of July. Okay, so that, that three-week period, basically just after the, the start of the war until just before uh, the city of Daejeon fell into North Korean hands. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and, and how many people, all in all, uh, do we think were killed? Well, <laughs> I think... I think that's a controversial point, really. The thing I want to get across every time I speak about this is mm. that we don't really know. I mean, like the lowest, the lowest estimate would be is from a US military report, and that is 1,800 people. Yeah. But the highest estimate is 7,000. Uh, and that's the figure that Winnington himself uses, but it's also the figure associated with North Korean propaganda at the time. So it's it's very hard to kind of to trust that figure as well. There's actually um, during the during the war, the North Koreans originally said four thousand people, mm. and then it suddenly went up to seven thousand. And the reason for that is really hard to discern. I've never actually found out why that is, but right, uh, yeah, that's that that's the. The problem is really when you're talking about this, nobody knows. That's what we're finding yeah. out today. When we give me that low end number again that the U.S. military quoted. Yeah, well, that number is one thousand eight hundred. 
okay. think that's a very trustworthy number, that one, because it, it was an official military report. So the chances are he checked his sources very well. Right. So somewhere between 1,800 and 7,000 people uh, were killed. Now, of course, it's a very, very different set of circumstance and different historical period, but I'm reminded of the uh, widely disparate number of uh, people who were killed during the uh, the Kwangju massacre of 1980. Mm, yeah, uh, the, the numbers there, I think, if I remember rightly, and I haven't looked at this for a while, the numbers vary somewhere between 250 to 2,000. So, you know, out by an order of 10. Yeah, so, yeah, I think it's it's really difficult talking about numbers relating to this yeah. in in any way at the moment. But yeah, mm. yeah, I, the the disparity is is similar. Yeah, I know what you mean. Does the city of Dejon itself uh, currently on on signs or markers? Does it use any numbers or or, uh, or approximations of numbers? Yeah, just the number I gave you. So I think the safest thing to say mm -hmm. is between 1,800 and 7,000 people. Because right. if you say that, then uh, you, know, you know you're not making a distinction on yeah. on either side. So on the official on the official literature and things, say at the massacre site itself in Dejan, you'll see the same thing: 1,800 to 7,000 people. Ah, okay, all right. So it's mentioning both the upper and the lower limits. Uh, now, in any discussion of the uh, the Dejon massacre, we have to talk about the, the an organization which is sometimes translated as the Bordeaux League, known in Korean as the Bordeaux Yonmeng, and sometimes mm -hmm. it's uh, uh, it, it's got another uh, English translation. I forget, is it Protection League or something? I, I, I've I've heard it called the Press Association before. Maybe oh. maybe that's the one you're thinking. Of. I've seen at least four different translations. It's a very confusing. A confusing kind of phrase, I think. So, yeah, there's a few translations I've seen out there, but the one I would stick with is National Guidance Alliance. Ah, the means... National Guidance Alliance. Okay. Yeah. Well, tell us what it is. What was the the Bordeaux Yonming, the National Guidance Alliance? What was its uh, its function and purpose, and and who was a member of it? Well, when you talked about preemptive killings, that was the uh, the National Guidance Alliance was the 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 mechanism by which people could be kind of watched so its origins were in uh, the japanese colonial era so obviously the japanese were opposed to communism as well so they had a way of reforming communists and reforming people in south korea and uh, those lists that the the japanese kept were kept also by the south koreans and they became a, a blacklist during the uh, you know the invasion of North Korea, but the, the the thing to understand about the the National Guidance Alliance is that a lot of those people were innocent. Like they would sign up for you know a ration of rice, or because somebody in their village told them to, and so it, it, that's the, the the worst aspect of this. During the Daejeon massacre, there were other people killed as well. Uh, some of them were actually fighting against the South Korean state. They were actually, you know, people who were in prison for leftist activities of one kind or another. But the, the National Guidance Alliance was the, the worst aspect of it, I think. Yes, I, I think I, I recall reading about the different ways that uh, people would be recruited to join the, uh, the National Guidance Alliance in the period leading up to uh, the, the outbreak of the Korean War. That, you know, it, it's all about, I guess, incentives. And you had uh, local officials who were incentivized to get as many suspected communists on the rolls as possible so that they could be monitored. Uh, and so, as you said earlier, that uh, people would, you know, perhaps for the, for an offer of uh, a free ration of rice or something would would uh, agree to sign up on a list. You know, it's a bit like some old people, in, in elderly people in South Korea, uh, they go along to these uh, presentations, apartment developers, uh, in the hopes of going home with a... Uh, a large container of free toilet paper rolls. <laughs> right. Yeah, so. it, it, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's all about quotas, isn't it? It's all yeah. about getting. It, I think people were rewarded by the the local administration for as many quotas they got. So as many people as signed up as possible, it looked it looked better to their superiors. I think this is all in in English. This is all in uh, Huang Suk Young's book on the uh, Korea's Grievous War. She does she she explains this in a lot of detail. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read that book yet. Uh, it's uh, I really recommend I recommend that if you want to read that. Uh, when was if that you want published? To know more, uh, 2016. Okay. Do you know the title? Offhand? Yeah, Korea's Korea's Grievous War. Ah, okay, Korea's Grievous War. Hwang Sugyong. All right, uh, that's good. There's not a lot. 
and not a lot of stuff in English on the uh, uh, the National Guidance Alliance. So basically, everyone who was a member of that group or who was a, an affiliate of that group was was killed during those three weeks. Uh, and then, mm -hmm. as you said, there were also other people. There were prisoners, people who were imprisoned in in Tejon prison at the time, and anyone who was suspect. Do we do we have evidence of you know the the, the during civil conflicts you often hear uh, where local grievances become uh, or get folded into uh, international issues. So, for example, a neighbor who's having a dispute with another neighbor about maybe uh, the location of a property line or, um, you know, or two fishmongers in the market, you know, one of them dobs the other one in as a, as a potential communist. Do we see, you know, have, have, have you seen evidence of that kind of activity going on? Um, I, I don't really, I mean, that's one way of looking at this. When you're looking at, you know, the, the phony issue of responsibility, which is something I, try, I don't really want to engage with, particularly at this moment in time. But when you're looking at the issue of responsibility, there's two ways of looking at this, really. You can say it is a Korean issue, you know, and it's down to clan, you know, like fratricidal kind of conflict mm. or, or it's something to do with you know uh, outside forces like you know there's a u.s responsibility or a a kind of un responsibility even i, I don't know it, it it depends but like uh, that's the two ways of looking at this and the one you're describing is the the fratricidal conflict kind of theory yeah well uh, not necessarily on the killing part itself but certainly in the suggesting who might be a, a candidate for, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. for killing yeah i think all, all all of that stuff is kind of uh, ingrained in, in the narrative to an extent. But in terms of Dejon, I don't know anything mm. specifically about that. I'm sure there's instances, but I don't know because I, I just personally, I would associate that as something to do with the countryside rather than a, a city like Dejon. I think it's, uh. but I, to be honest, I don't really, I'm not sure about that. I don't know much, especially as it pertains to the Dejon massacre. Now, was there uh, or did a second massacre take place in Daejeon when the North Korean People's Army retreated in September 50, uh, 1950? Did they do any preemptive killing of people who might sign up with the South Korean army or people who might want to get revenge? Yeah, I think I think that's often been there was a massacre. Well, actually, something that's that's not really well understood about this is that there wasn't one massacre by the North Koreans. There was a series so it was it was plural, and it happened on maybe I think it's six, five five different places. I don't have the figures with me right now, but uh -huh. five different places in the Daejeon area. The main one was Daejeon Prison, uh, where five hundred people were killed overall, or an estimate of five hundred people were killed overall. The figure for how many people were killed by the North Koreans in Daejeon is one thousand five hundred and fifty-seven. So that's split between about four or five different sites, I think. Right. Okay. So, gosh. Um, so both sides really did quite a bit of a bit of killing of, of unarmed people who who they saw as as enemies. Yeah, but the I think the if you if you take that into account, you have to understand that the uh, the North Korean massacre was kind of heavily reported at the time. Mm -hmm. So it's not good to say you know the two things were the same. You have to be very careful. So, I mean, in 1985 there was a memorial built on the site of the Daejeon prison massacre, for instance. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was also a KBS documentary that ran that year where they funded they funded a memorial for the site, which uh, hadn't been kind of memorialized yet. And still to this day, that stands there. You can go and visit it. I think it's run or I'm not sure if it's run by the Korean Freedom Association or, or no, Korean Freedom Federation. Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of like a conservative civic group that wanted to memorialize what happened there. I see. So the uh, so the massacre by the North or massacres, plural, by the North Koreans uh, have been memorialized in, uh, in Taejeon at the site of the mm -hmm. prison. But the earlier massacre of the uh, members of the uh, National Guidance Alliance and, and other associated people uh, ha has not been memorialized to this time. Mm -hmm. No, and that's that's currently. In, I mean, that's why I have a job here. Uh, mm. That's currently in the process of being memorialized in a more sensitive way. So there's a peace park that's going to be built on the site of the South Korean massacre ah. in 2024. And the important thing to realize about that is that the the peace park at the site of the South Korean massacre is for all victims in the Korean War. Right. So everybody who was killed in the North Korean massacres and the South Korean massacres will, you know, be represented there. So it's kind of like, it's, it, 
the word I've often heard used is healing. It's about, uh, you know, like finally coming to a proper understanding of what happened yeah. and trying to think about it and uh, reach a level of healing, if you will. Well, let's talk a bit about those excavations there. Why are there excavations taking place in Dejon now, over 70 years after the uh, tragic events? Well, I mean, the main reason for that is because you could never, you couldn't have done it until, I mean, you could only really talk about this from 1999, when the US Army reports were found. And like that was as a result of the, the Nogunri kind of investigations at the time. Mm -hmm. So they just you know, remind they found, our listeners there a little bit about that one. Uh, the Nogunri Nogun massacre was the, the kind of very controversial event. South Korean refugees were meant to have been uh, killed underneath a bridge by uh, American forces. And in the same time, July of 1950. So it was in those investigations that photographs of the Daejeon massacre were discovered by the Associated Press team, I think it was, uh, mm. in, the, in the US National Archives. And because those photos were found, it was no longer possible to deny those massacres and from that point onwards I mean people knew what happened before that but they couldn't really speak about it because nobody uh, it just wasn't it was too early mm -hmm. so um people like the investigative journalist uh Shim Yu Sang who's been uh, covering this for at least 20 years uh started to talk about it then and investigate it properly okay and, and part of that investigation is what led to uh the the, the excavations of the mass graves is that correct uh, yeah, uh, I mean, it didn't come about easily. Uh, there was a lot of pressure that had to be applied. And mm -hmm. I think there's been a total of, I, I might be wrong, but I think there's been seven excavations so far, but there was never enough money mm -hmm. to do the big one to, to do the, I mean, if you if you are ever in Dejan, I really, one of the things I always uh, want to get across to people relation to this massacre is that unless you see the scale of what happened yeah you cannot you cannot really understand it so if you go to those excavations uh and actually have a look you'll see why it's so expensive like i mean there's very practical reasons why i think the government never funded it before even though they you know in my opinion they should have done uh because it's just so it's such a huge site it means and they didn't even know. Describe it to us a little bit. What? How? Uh, are we talking about long, just very long graves that that were dug and and people were pushed into pits? I mean, how? What does the site look like? Well, you're talking about a whole a whole valley, and in the valley is closed off. You can't get out of the valley, which I think is why the people who did the killing chose that valley. And in that valley, there are at least eight sites uh, where people are known to have been killed. And Actually, people were killed there as, as late as January 1951. Mm. So even when the South Koreans took Daejeon again, more people were taken there to be killed after the North Koreans had left. These are presumably people who had somehow collaborated or, or seemed to be collaborated with the North Koreans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I think uh, what you were mentioning, yeah, yeah, that, that definitely. I think uh, they would have been people who have been in prison. I think it was 151 people, according to prison records, who were killed at that time. Mm. But the, I mean, the, the best way to, to see the site and to understand it is to look at a drone shot or something like that, because it's, right. it's absolutely, it really is vast. It's like a, the peace part was chosen to be built there because of this, because of this, because the, the valley is such a site of, you know, uh, of mass killing. And it, it was chosen to be, I think, in order for the peace part to be built there, there had to be a competition between all of the other places that would wanted memorials for the Korean War, right. because of the specificity, the specificity, <laughs> I can specificity. Yes, because of the specificity the of the, one. yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> of, of the Daejeon massacre, like it was because of the the huge nature of it. I think yeah. that's why it was chosen. Have the excavations and and you know the examinations of the mass graves brought out you know, whether the earlier, I'm sorry, the smaller or the larger approximation of numbers, you know, whether 1700 or 7000 is more correct? I mean, what does it look like based on the on the pits that we're that we're excavating? I think if you speak to the the bone archaeologist, uh, uh, who's the kind of the head of the excavations, Park Sonju, he thinks the number is a lot lower. Like, because uh, but he has, he has a very scientific mm -hmm. way of looking at this. 
which which I sort of appreciate actually, because I, I think if you're going to be a scientist, yeah. you don't want to be kind of influenced by ideology and things like that. So he tries to be very objective. If he doesn't have evidence, then he won't he won't admit to anything yeah. at all. You know, he won't uh, accept supposition or anything like that. So he he thinks the number is a lot lower. Like he thinks. My my personal feelings are that I would say. I mean, in Dejon prison at that time, there was four thousand people. Mm. And they also took other people from around uh, other places in the Dejon area, uh, including, you know, people were killed from as far away as Suwon and things like that. If I was to make a guess, which isn't a scientific guess, I would say something like 4,000 people. But I think Park Sunju would say it a lot lower than that, to be honest. Mm. You'd, you'd have to ask yeah. him. I don't know. <laughs> now, David, how did you become interested and involved in this project? Uh, I I became interested in it by just walking around I was here I'd finished my uh, PhD at the time and uh, my my brain was trying to focus on something different and uh, walking around uh, where I worked at the time there's a you, you know Gongju don't you near Daejeon there's a there's also there was also a massacre in Gongju in Daejeon ah. and I was just I was just going for a walk and uh, I happened upon it, you know, it was really, it was quite a shocking thing for me. And there was a, there was a really horrible feeling there. I can't really, really describe it to you. There's a really haunting, horrible feeling. And uh, it just made me more interested to find out more about this. And as soon as I looked into this, which was about 2015, I think, I immediately came across Alan Winnington. Mm. And at that time, Alan Winnington had, I mean, he, he barely had a Wikipedia entry. Mm. Nobody, nobody knew uh, anything about him at all. But these days, you know, uh, people are finding out more and more. So uh, I was interested in a, in a kind of curious way, but I was very conscious that, you know, it wasn't my thing. I'm not, I'm not Korean. I shouldn't be, you know, involving myself in this. But when I found that Winnington had an archive and when I met his family and they had all of this information, I realized I could contribute something extremely practical that was uh, very useful. So it was only really then that I got involved. So there's actually four different films now based on my engagement with this. The first was The Longest Two oh, yeah. in 2018. I think that's also that on YouTube. By, yeah, and that was made by public subscription. So uh, we, we kind of crowdfunded and got enough money to make that. Then after that, after I met the Winnington family, which I did in 2018 after the making of that film. We made another one called 70 Years Later, where Esther and Esther Sampson, who used to be Esther Winnington, mm. but she divorced from Alan, came to visit the memorial and she gave a speech and she talked about her time uh, in Korea. That was the first time anyone has ever asked her to talk about the Daejeon massacre since it wow. happened in the in the UK or in or in South Korea, obviously. And then after that, in 2020, we made another movie which will be on general release in January called Abyss. And then after that came the KBS one, I think, yeah, in 2021. We should, I think, uh, stop there and, and talk a bit about Alan Winnington, who he was, and how he's come to be connected to the Daejeon massacre. Mm, okay. Uh, well, Alan Winnington was in the 30s. He was a, a British communist who who worked for the Daily. He kind of worked his way up the Daily Worker ranks. Uh, the Daily Workers being the uh, work being the, the official party organ of the uh, the Communist Party of Great Britain. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he worked his way up, up the ranks of the Daily Worker until in 1948 he was sent by them over the Chinese Revolution. Mm -hmm. And he, he kind of worked for the, the Xinhua News Agency in a roundabout way, I think, and but also reporting for the Daily Worker at the same time. And then because he was in China, he was sent to Korea in July 1950 to cover the Korean War. Okay, so he came in through China into uh, the Korean Peninsula and then went down, presumably in the wake of the uh, Korean People's Army, into occupied South Korea. Uh, yeah, he, he was, I mean, he was the only correspondent. He, he was, he's, he's a very interesting uh, person to kind of discuss because on the one side, you're, you're meant to see him as a, like, you know, this kind of man who's just obsessed with, with ideology, some kind of robot. Uh, 
and who only thought of one thing. But on, on the other, when you actually speak to his family and you, you hear more about his life, he's actually a figure of uh, complexity, mm. you know, and th that's the thing that really interests me. And if it wasn't for that complexity, he wouldn't have gone on the journey. The, the most important thing about what he did, uh, apart from his reportings uh, uh, during the truce talks and the peace talks and, and everything like that, was that he insisted on this journey. He insisted that uh, he go uh, to follow the North Korean army and see what was happening in South Korea. And he's pretty much the only journalist who was who was able to do that at the time. I don't think there's a, another example. There, there could well be other people, but not, not who followed it in the wake of the North Koreans. So what he saw was unique and very specific. Mm. And uh, that's why his photographs and his reports are so important today, because there is no, there is no others, basically. So regardless of his ideology, you find that in order to build this museum and in order to really concentrate on this subject, you have to pay attention to what he saw. Even if you don't believe mm. it, you have to try, try and listen anyway. There were other uh, journalists who went in uh, from the uh, the South Korean side in the wake of the American army. There's, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Reginald Thompson, who wrote uh, Cry Korea, uh, the Korean War, a reporter's notebook. And also there was the uh, uh, most famous uh, and possibly the only woman journalist, Margarita Higgins, who... Uh, oh, was, yes, was... yes. But she actually report. She did one report on the Daejeon massacre, actually. She heard about mm. it in, in the background. Uh, from a, a kind of somebody in the South Korean police, and she, and she said that 1,200 people were killed in Daejeon, but she wasn't very specific ah. and given. But she gave an inkling of it. So there were there were people who did report on it uh, at the time, but those people uh, didn't have the independence of Winnington. This is what I mean about the complexity of Winnington's character. Like he was quite an arrogant man. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone always calls him arrogant. And I'm sure he was, like, uh, from the sounds of it. But his arrogance kind of made him forge this path that nobody else had really uh, managed to do during the Korean War. So, like, Margaret, Margarita Higgins, for instance, was uh, uh, in a press pool of, say, 60 journalists in Daejeon. Yeah. And they were all, you know, monitored by the U.S. Army and things like that. But even though Winnington was with North Koreans, he had a, a quite a level of, independence as well i mean he had a he had a manager in his team bong min pak and he had like a translator and he had a, a few people who were there just to protect him but really he, he he had a unique opportunity to be independent and that's why he saw so much now so he wrote the first extensive reports on the massacre but of course he'd arrived after the massacres had finished. So what did he see? Did he see the actual, um, uh, the mass graves? Well, he says, he says, in, he actually, Winnington actually wrote a, uh, an unpublished manuscript on the Korean War. He tried to, he tried to publish a manuscript in July, no, when was it, 1960? It was in 1960 in the GDR, but they, they wouldn't publish it for some reason. And in that book, he gives more details about exactly when he arrived in Daejeon. Mm -hmm. And he said he arrived in Daejeon on the 24th of July. Right. So that means about a week after. some of the Yeah, well, a week after it had yeah. finished, the final massacre had finished, but kind of uh, three weeks after the first massacres had finished. So the bodies were in uh, different states of comp uh, decomposition mm. and things. So, I mean, he, he didn't see it happen, but he saw the important thing is his photographs, I think. You can say, you could argue endlessly about his writings yeah. on, on the Daejeon massacre because, I mean, his first reports were just, I would say they were just propaganda. But when he came to reflect on it again in the future, mm. especially in his pamphlet, I Saw the Truth in Korea, it was those descriptions that the excavation team have, have always used. And as we're uncovering things there, we're finding out what, what, he, what he said was pretty much true in that pamphlet. Not about the numbers, though, not the figure of how many people. Well, he was already using the 7,000 figure then, wasn't he? Yeah, he, this is the thing about figures. I mean, they're just blindly kind of repeated by people because nobody right. knows. So the, the only thing you can rely on in Winnington is his photographs and his description of the pits. And when you put those things together with the U.S. Army pictures as well, you can see that he was very accurate in what he described. Now... I've not read that uh, that pamphlet, so I, I, I'm not familiar with what he wrote in it. And uh, I see 
having a look on the internet that a, a copy of it is uh, a couple of thousand dollars, so it's not easy to get a hold of. <laughs> yeah. During the uh, the Korean War, and particularly during the the peace talks that first off started in Kaesong and then moved to Panmunjom, uh, some of the journalists, particularly journalists who were operating from the northern side, and also some uh, civic groups from other countries, accused the United States and the United Nations of using germ warfare during the Korean War. Did Alan Willington also uh, support those claims? Um, I, I think that's that's one of the the ideological kind of talking points of the Korean War, and the way I try and look about this. Uh, look at this kind of issue. I look at the massacres and uh, things like you're saying, biological warfare, in terms of we don't know anything. There's a the historian Tom Buchanan uh, concluded in, I think he has a paper on, not on Winnington, but, but about British participants in the Korean mm -hmm. War. He says that in reality, there was little scope for serious debates or access to the factual evidence that could resolve competing claims in the Korean War. So, I mean, there was never... We've never had any facts. We've never had any kind of point in which we can kind of debate these things properly. For the massacres, that is changing. We can do that. But for things like uh, biological warfare, you'd need you'd need somebody who uh, spoke Chinese and uh, had access to English sources as well. So it's 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 pretty it's pretty difficult to discern those kind of things. But I'd say that I'm sure Winnington supported those mm. claims as well. Yes. Uh, now, but uh, I, he, he worked very closely with um, Australian journalist Wilfred Burchett, who was also a bit of a, a renegade uh, character in the. Uh, <laughs> In the sort of the communist world, uh, he'd come from being a, a country school teacher in in rural Victoria in Australia, and had gone to um, uh, to Japan. And he was one of the first, if not the first, uh, journalists to go into Hiroshima after the uh, the bombing, the nuclear bomb, and report on you know what he actually saw there. And that became quite influential reporting on the effects of of a nuclear bomb on on civilian populations. And then he also ended up on the North Korean, you know, reporting from within the North Korean side, uh, as Alan Winnington did, and they traveled together and were, you know, living in the, the same encampment for uh, journalists that were uh, sympathetic to the communist side. But Wilf, unlike Alan, uh, Wilfred Burchard denied to his death that he was uh, a, a member of the uh, the Communist Party. Uh, yeah, I've I've heard that from uh, Winnington's first wife, Esther, says he was never a member. Yeah. So, yeah, that's his difference. I well, think. about about 15 years ago here in Seoul, I met the a late uh, Hungarian journalist by the name of Tibor Murray, who was also one of those uh, journalists reporting from within the North Korean camp of, of what was going on at the Kaesong peace talks. And Tibor later on ended up uh, defecting from Hungary uh, during the 1956 uh, uh, crackdown uh, by Moscow on uh, what was going on in Budapest. Uh, and he says that when he mm. defected, he moved to France, and he later on came to investigate much more closely the, uh, the the claims of the of germ warfare. And he did a complete 180 and turned around and said that he concluded that it was all uh, a hoax. And but what's interesting here for for Wilfred Burchard is that Tibor said that Wilfred did confess to him that he was actually in secret a member of the Chinese Communist Party, and even showed him his. Uh, his membership card, but was it was something that he didn't let on to anybody else. Oh, really? I didn't know that because uh, even Alan's first wife uh, told me that he was never a member. So maybe that's something he kept secret for some reason. Yeah. But um, I think um, what what you just said about uh, what Tibor told you about the the biological warfare and everything, I think that's what Tom Buchanan in his 2012 book also claims. He he thinks it was a hoax as well. He doesn't say it in a great lot of detail but i think it's just in a footnote mm -hmm. but that's what he says so perhaps that is i don't know that's not my area <laughs> yes. but, but it's a, my i think there's so little knowledge out there about all of these things that it's hard to make any kind of decision uh, as to the accuracy of what was said at that time but with real investigation i think i think it can be possible in the future have you um but that's not something have you come across the two books that wilfred birch and alan willington wrote together one is about the uh, the largest uh, prison of war camp during the korean war on kojedo it's called koje unscreened they spell koje k-o-j-e 
Corgi and Scream. Yeah, I have both of those here and Plain Perfidy. Yes, that was it. That yeah, that's the other one. Yeah, plain, yeah. Now, Plain Perfidy is a bit different because it was written after the war, uh, actually published in April 1954 uh, by the authors themselves in Beijing, of all places. I think it was published by the British-China Friendship Association or something. Well, the, 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 there may be multiple editions. The one that I've got here says published by the authors, Box 545, Peking, China. Oh, so there may be right. an, an okay. edition published in Great Britain as possible, but I've only got this one. And I've not read the entire book, Plain Perfidy, but the introduction is really uh, what I would call a heavily ideologically slanted screed against the United Nations side of the war. I mean, it's the subtitle of the book is The Plot to Wreck Korean Peace. I mean, it's very, very strongly worded. It doesn't sound yeah, like... I mean, um, you know, it's something that you would expect uh, an objective journalist to write. I mean, it, it's it's very, very strongly um, slanted. To... Well, this is, I, I think this is the thing about Winnington and Winnington's sources and Birchett's sources, sources as well. This is why nobody engages with uh... <laughs> like, because Because, like, those ki that kind of language is really is really hard to take an objective kind of view of that but in in amongst in amongst all of those details uh there is there is usually something but i don't know i i think i feel the same about his book plain perfidy mm. i find it really hard to oh, read. It is, isn't it? but i know i know the god j yeah. one i know there's there's a lot of information in there that could be very interesting to researchers and stuff but I, i've never focused on either of those books but i think that, yeah I, i'd agree with you about plain Perfidy, to be honest, it's kind of there's a lot of there's a lot of cant, isn't there? There, there is a Definitely. lot of yeah, a lot of cant. That's true. Um, it, it it makes me wonder. Just thinking about bringing up the Kodje Island, you know, we've got the investigations in in Dejon. Of course, we've also got investigations and and excavations happening uh, in Chejudo, bringing up the um, mm. uh, the April third. Uh, killings um, and the uprising on Chejador, where you know it was. It, it sounds like just from the accounts there that it was almost every man for himself in Chejador. You know, there were just people from both sides killing each other, uh, and then you had the Northwest Youth Alliance coming in and and, and were doing some killing on top of that, uh, and then there were yeah, lots of awful, killing on both it? sides in Koja Island. Is this? Are we seeing now that? 70 years after the war, that there's a bit of a reevaluation. That there's you know more investigations of these things um, from the South Korean side, a greater interest in laying bare the truth, no matter who was involved in the killing? I think there's a need, there's a need for some kind of, I, I'm very cautious, like somebody like Winnington would say, you know, I saw the truth in yeah. Korea, like he would, he would talk about the need for truth. But I don't think there's any need for truth necessarily mm. at the minute. I know people want yeah. that. But I, I think there's a need for, for closure, definitely, and healing. So it's not, it's not really about, you know, finding out who was right mm. or wrong necessarily, but it's about finding out the facts and finally judging what happened. So in, in Dejon, for instance, like the reason, one of the reasons these excavations are happening isn't just to obviously, you know, retrieve, finally retrieve these bodies for the, yeah. the victims of, uh, or the, or the he, he sang, as you're, you're meant to say, the kind of sacrifices right. of the people who died here. Like, uh, it's to find out the story of what happened and to really understand. So now in Dejon, on, just on site one, we've, we've found a fire pit. And this is this fire pit confirms witness testimony because they say that uh, the witnesses said that during the you know like the, the first period of the massacres, uh, people were killed in a firing squad, mm. and then when fifty of them had been killed, they burnt their bodies with petrol on a fire, and now we've found the fire. And like it's not just it's not just uh, finding some scorched earth. You found like charcoal basically, and some of it is burnt with petrol, and some of it isn't even blackened. So there hasn't even been a, uh, you know what I mean? It's almost like it was there yesterday. Yeah. It seems so real. It seems, and in amongst that fire, there's clothing and bone material and things like that. So it's kind of to see that is to get a sense of the full story. I think what people need to hear people who are interested in this and remember many people don't even know about this the amount of time you the amount of times you talk to people in South Korea who, who have never who are completely unaware of this sometimes who've lived in that area for many many years and they still don't know what's happened so it, it's getting that narrative right and Winnington is an essential part of that I think 
but uh, so are many other sources in the UK and in other countries. I think communist sources in particular in places like, like you were saying, this, this guy Tibor, I think I've heard his name mm. before, like those, those kind of sources are very, uh, people don't really look at them. And even if they are propagandized, there's there's things underlying that that, that are true. It's it's not you know like propaganda shouldn't be seen as lies. It's propaganda is the presentation of what sometimes it can be lies, but it's often just the presentation of of uh, what people believe to be facts. And there are a lot of facts that it's possible to unearth through sources like that. I think. Now you you bring up the um, or touched on the the perceived need for truth uh, in, in Korea. And, and that's um, certainly a, a fraught area. In 2005, in the wake of the stories about the Norgon Rhee uh, massacre of 1999, uh, the National Assembly created the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of the Republic of Korea that mm. investigated that incident and other incidents. And you know, in the end, they uh, got a, a, a total of around 200 cases of what the uh, the commission described as civilian massacre committed by U.S. soldiers. Now, that was during a time, the mid the early to mid two thousands, during a time of uh, uh, quite strong anti-American and, and anti-American military sentiment in South Korea. So it it does seem that it's hard to get away from the politics of it all when we talk about truth. Mm, yeah, I think I, I think that's that's the problem. If you're going to claim, usually, you know, truth corresponds to one ideology or mm. the other. So I, I would personally never never use those words, I think. And like uh, that's part of the difficulty in Alan Winnington's reporting. But there is there is facts, and you can find out mm -hmm. facts by things like archaeology and uh, especially Winnington's photographs, mm. I think, and especially his, his notes and journals. Because, I mean, when he went to the Daejeon massacre, he, he spoke to the, the people who'd uh, witnessed it or, and you know, amassed as much as he could, and he took notes at the time. Those notes still exist. And you can see, even if you can't see the truth, because yeah. <laughs> I would never use that word, I think you can see how the propaganda was formed. So you can separate what he propagandized and what he heard on the ground. And I think that's incredibly important. I mean, that's really valuable, especially to the people. One of the, one of the things that uh, he said, for instance, is that people uh, who were taken to the Dejon massacre were packed like sardines. Mm. He said they were, they were in layers, a layer of men, a layer of straw bags and a layer of women, and then another layer of men on top. And you look at that and you think, what, what, what are you talking yeah. about? You know, non that's nonsense clearly, but, when you see his notes and when you understand what he wrote at that time, you can see that a lot of that is uh, the the horrible nature of the moment. It's the it's the kind of trauma that people experience. I mean, prison, there's testimony from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission when they spoke to prison officers who said that um, the prisoners couldn't kneel down in the truck, so they had to lie down somehow. And there's also a report by the observer journalist, Philip Dean, yeah. who interviewed some called Father Cadas, Cadas, Father Cadas, and he said the same thing. He said the prisoners were packed layer upon layer. And it's not, it's, it gives you a greater understanding of the mindset of what people experienced at that time. Uh, you, you'll never know the truth mm. of how those people were in the trucks, but you understand the, the horrible nature of what happened more, I think. The, the rumor and the supposition and the, the trauma, basically. Are these photographs that Alan Winnington took and the notes that he made, are they available online for people to look at? Well, the, the Winnington archive and the photographs were, were in the Sheffield University vaults for a long mm. time because one academic in Sheffield, you know, got them from the Winnington family and they weren't, I think there was some illness in, in the department and it wasn't deemed that important at the time. So mm. they weren't really uh, dealt with. But then uh, in 2019, when we made the second film, I got a letter from the mayor and uh, the mayor opened up the wow. archive with his with his letter yeah. <laughs> basically and they they gave a really they gave a member of staff there uh, chris loftus who is the archivist uh they gave him you know a special time to devote to this so he's done that now and the archive at sheffield will be digitized fully mm. so all of winnington's photographs will be online you know in 
forever basically right. so that's what's happened okay so yeah you will be able to see them hopefully very hopefully soon very soon now have you uh, ever visited the victorious fatherland liberation war museum or the shinchon museum of war atrocities in north korea or read about them I'm, i've certainly read about them but i've definitely <laughs> i think if i visited there there might be a problem at my yeah. work <laughs> well that's so. right you might have gone there before <laughs> starting it there <laughs> well, yeah so I think uh no I've never I've never even been to that part of Korea yeah. but the uh yeah anyway well, yeah. in, you, in those museums they the it's very you know the the narrative the traditional narrative of blame everything on the Americans is still very much uh at the fore and so every piece of evidence that's brought up is uh, more evidence of uh you know evil deeds by the Americans and they really tend to to whip it up there you know the there are these very graphic paintings, large, large size paintings that they have up on the walls of the Shinchon Museum of American War Atrocities that show very sadistic American soldiers using uh, red hot pincers that have been uh, heated uh, above coal fires to uh, to cut off the breasts of Korean women and to uh, throw babies down the well, uh, etc. It, it's quite graphic. But it was interesting because when I was talking, I interviewed um, a couple of months ago, Dick Underwood, who's a, a member of the Underwood family who uh, was raised in Korea. So he actually spoke Korean and went out with the American army far in, deep into North Korea in the period of September and October 1950. And he saw uh, and heard many accounts of uh, bodies being dropped in wells there. But he said that there it was actually by the North Koreans. But th this dropping of bodies in <sighs> wells seems to be a, a common theme. Do you see that coming up in Daejeon as well? Well, that, that's the yeah. Actually, that's one of the most horrible things. If you talk to the the prison officer's uh, son in Daejeon, uh, which which you can do, you, um, he will tell you that you know on Daeje on the site of Daejeon prison, the North Koreans threw I think 171 people over overall down two different oh. wells. So yeah, it's, it seems to be a, a horrible a horrible aspect of of what they did certainly. And yeah, yeah. So yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, just horrible. And the other one of my other uh, recent interviews with retired Lieutenant Colonel Ashton Orms, who has been to North Korea to do another kind of excavation. That is that the I'm sure you're aware the the American military is, or the American government is still interested in bringing back as many American remains as possible that have been lost in uh, in North Korea, particularly in the area around the uh, the Chosin Reservoir. So. There used to be mm, right, uh, yeah. these teams that would go up there and work alongside North Korean teams to dig up American bones and send them back. Uh, and that was one of the the, the areas that um, President Donald Trump and uh, Chairman Kim Jong-un agreed on when they had their summit in, in Singapore, was that this work would once again proceed. So it's interesting to see excavations unceasing, well, still going on, still being a current issue in both sides of the Korea. Yeah, it just shows it just shows what a brutal and horrible conflict it really was and i think uh, all of these things together uh, i think are very important so th this can finally be uh, dealt with properly uh, do you hope to uh, to write a book out of, about this uh, at the end of your work well my focus has always been you know the foreign aspects of the korean war so journalism outside of uh, south korea but also specifically the story of alan winnington which i think is just uh it's just quite quite a fascinating story in mm. general like i always see him as this uh, figure of complexity that nobody really quite understand quite understands so i suppose my goal would be to write some kind of biography at the end of this uh especially but pertaining pertaining to his time in in korea specifically because uh, I think that's the most important thing. If you want to understand Alan Winnington, you have to understand what he did in Korea at that mm. time, and nobody really does. Have there been no uh, biographies written about him after his death? No, he he had his he's got his memoirs, but everything. This is the thing about the Korean War generally. Everything is unfinished. Mm. Every narrative has never really come to an end, and he wrote these these memoirs. But his memoirs themselves were kind of unfinished. He clearly hadn't finished mm. them. They they sort of end in China, and and even then his family had to kind of stick them together in in 19, 1986, I think. So it, they don't really do him justice. Huh. So this whole story is is a fascinating thing to write about. Um, however you want to pursue it, it is interesting. And there's 
just compared to Alan Winnington, there's been a lot of books written in Australia um, about Wilfred Burchett during his life and after his death. And going back to Tibor Murray, the, uh, the Hungarian journalist, he ended up writing a biography and self-publishing it about Wilfred Burchett called simply On Burchett. He self-published mm. it in Australia around 2005. You can find that online uh, as a sort of a supplementary uh, resource for your uh, work, perhaps. Yeah, I think uh, I think Burchett. Uh, what was it? Yeah, he he actually. There's many pamphlets and things he yes. wrote that that people have forgotten about. He won't. He wrote one about. I mean, this is North Korean news, so maybe you're interested. He wrote one about North Korea in 1968 called Again Korea. Yeah, I've got that one too. And, uh, <laughs> Ah, well, that that was is an interesting thing in terms of Winnington's story. Oh. So when I talk about this complexity in Winnington, like that book, he was told to write it by the North mm. Koreans, basically, and and what it amounts to is just a a, a hagiography of <laughs> like the North Korean state at that time. Cool. And Winnington was was also told to write that book around the same ah. time. And uh, <laughs> and according to his second wife, uh, Ursula his prize for writing that book was meant to be a golden watch and he refused to do it and said that Kim can stick his golden watch up his oh, ass. <laughs> so, so that's why Bircher wrote it so, alone after they wrote those books together. I, I think so. And I think there was a falling ah. out and um, there was a falling out. Uh, this is another thing I want to get across about Winnington. It's very interesting. Like around the time of the sixties, there was a falling out, not just with Birchett, but with the, with the North Korean state as mm. well. So it's uh, he didn't he didn't like the way things were be, being kind of done up there. I think, and I don't I don't think it was a particularly pleasant place to be at that time. It sounded, I mean, nineteen sixties and nineteen sixty eight. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, there's there's complexity there, and there's a difference between Birchett and Winnington, which I think is really interesting. Yes, it, it certainly is, and. It, it seems like you've got your work cut out for you, uh, putting together um, a biography of Alan Winnington and also working on the uh, uh, the archaeological uh, or, or the, the historical research of what happened at the Tejon Massacre. Um, mm, yeah. <laughs> it's been fascinating talking to you, David Miller. I really appreciate you coming on the show today and, and sharing with us your experiences and what you've learned. Okay, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account and you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula on a day-to-day -day basis. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and help us achieve my very own personal dream of reaching 10% of Joe Rogan's listenership. And if you have any feedback, questions, or guest suggestions, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. <laughs>